Declassify, verb, meaning to officially declare information or documents to be no longer secret. In the art world, there's always more than what meets the eye. I'm Parker. And I'm Georgia. And this is Declassified. We're your hosts, here to uncover stories, truths, and other clues to solve the mystery of success in this complex industry. Access lies at the heart of our mission. We amplify as many voices as we can. Featuring artists, collectors, curators, advisors, historians, and entrepreneurs, listening as they tell us what it's like to walk in their shoes. Our guest today is the fabulous Christy McClear. Christy is Declassify's executive producer, helping us remove hurdles and open doors for the podcast success. Her belief is that clear nomenclature and pathways for everyone to enter the field are two super important ways to ensure equity and diversity. She has been the first CEO for Super Blue, the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, and the Philip Johnson Glass House. She has never had a job which existed before. Let me say that again. She has <laughs> never had a job which existed before. Christy received her bachelor's in urban design and architectural history from Stanford and an MBA from Penn's Wharton School of Business with a focus on real estate finance. She served on the board of trustees for Stanford University and is presently the board co-chair of the Municipal Art Society in New York. Christy, we wanted to start off by thank you, thanking you for being our executive producer, a mentor, and perhaps most importantly, a fashion inspiration to both of us. <laughs> we are so excited to welcome you onto the pod and share your voice and unique perspective with the newly formed declassified community. Before we jump into the conversation today, I want to let everyone know what to expect from this season of Declassified. So here's the 411. Every episode is grounded in a simple, single question. And today's question is, what is the art world? Throughout each episode, we hope to answer the question posed at the beginning. We will hopefully learn, alongside all of our listeners, how artists, art entrepreneurs, gallerists, auction house leaders, and students fit into this exciting and dynamic industry. Thank you for that, Parker. So helpful. Um, so without further ado, Christy, welcome. Christy, how are Thank you doing you. today? <laughs> I'm great. I just jumped off the ski slopes to uh, uh, join our podcast. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. I think then fabulous. we can add fitness inspiration to this list. Yep, things, so. <laughs> to the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Truly. Um, so as you just heard Parker say, our big question for you is an especially big one today. It is, what is the art world? And I mean, I think this question can be answered in a variety of ways. But to start easy and a little bit more small, when people say the art world, what do they mean in conversation? You know, this is the perfect question, first question for you guys to ask, because I think when students are looking at the art world, it sounds very big. And as opposed to other industries where it's, you know, the banking industry or the venture capital industry, the art world, we call it the art world because it's both social and it's professional. So you have so many different people playing in what's basically an ecosystem um, that feeds into this world, whether it's a scholastic group of people, the collectors, the artists themselves, um, you have the contributors you know, to those dialogues like the conservation people, uh, galleries, auctions, fairs, etc. So it's really about the ecosystem, and that's why people call it the art world. I know. I feel like Georgia and I have both heard the art world, the art ecosystem, the art industry, all thrown around. But to push you to be a little bit more specific, 
when you're thinking about like this art world or this art industry, who who are some of the big players that we're thinking about, or what type of of people make up this kind of community and tribe of people? So I think you could break it into a couple of different parts, and as people are um, thinking about jobs and careers in the art world. They could start by thinking about, um, I always like to say it's like Maslow's hierarchy, like the highest level of the hierarchy are the scholars and the curators and the museums and the foundations. So these are the people who are um, writing the history um, for for art history. So it's basically, you know, what are the movements in art that we're noticing? Um, how do we start to contextualize all of these artistic ideas, whether it's in arts and performance and culture? So that's the highest level. It's, you know, this is scholars, museums, curators, writers, foundations, and you're interviewing some of these people. So that's great. That I would call that sort of the highest level of the firmament. And then you have the market-based players, right? So this is a different part of the ecosystem. This is the galleries. This is the auction houses. These are the fairs. These might be the collection advisors. They're people who um, bring together the, the commercial market, the exchange of artwork from collector or buyer, from, from the artist to the buyer. And then you have all these people who sort of serve that ecosystem, which, you know, these are people like, there are critics who are very important. Uh, they sort of exist somewhere between the, the scholars and they exist, uh, but also they, they critique gallery shows. So they sort of exist between those two areas. You have people who are working in internet-based innovations. You have conservators, um, which are, you know, there's a lot of sort of research that happens that um, is really important and supports both scholarship and the market. You have collectors. And, you know, and collectors can also be, have a private museum. So anyway, I think that there are different areas where there are careers they're very different tones and they're very different uh, requirements to be in each part of that ecosystem. I hope that helps a little bit. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, I think that we can add students maybe to the bottom of the hierarchy or, <laughs> or slide them <laughs> like, in somewhere that we're pawing at the bottom. We're pawing at the bottom. You know what? Honestly, though, I have to say, I've always said when I was at the Rauschenberg Foundation, I said university uh, museums sometimes get overlooked as probably some of the most important channels to present artwork because it really uh, touches the students who mm. are the future of the art world and also that's where scholarship happens so well you guys are pretty important christy you know we both love university museums <laughs> I know, georgia you work at a university I do. museum i do anyway oh <laughs> so again coming back to this idea of the art industry um so we've talked about everybody who's kind of welcomed into this space or under this umbrella of a term. Um, but why do you think uh, the art industry or the art market perhaps might not suffice to describe this space? Or who or what would be excluded perhaps by such a title? Like market, for example. Well, you know, I do think um, one of the key things that when you move into the art industry, let's say you're working in the professional field scholastically or in the marketplace, 
the most important thing you can remember is that the artist should be mm-hmm. at the center of all of these discussions. So whether you work for a gallery as your first job, or let's say you go work for an auction house, or you're going to go work for an artist foundation, having the artist as the center point of your thoughts and your plans, you're always going to sort of succeed. So I don't, I don't want despite the fact that I didn't say artist, you know, that's, it's all built around the artist and they're pretty much the most important thing. The, the other part of the social aspect of the art world, uh, you could, you could assume that some of that is exclusive or not exclusive. It, it, it really, um, it's just a, it's just a way for people to get together who really love something and uh, many people travel together to go to different fairs or museum openings. In no way is it intended to be exclusive, except for the fact that really a lot of social things happen just to, you know, create a community around the things that people love. Um, I think that what's really exciting about the art world right now is that um, it's the forces of change in the world, whether it's social justice or Black Lives Matter, all or even sort of the hierarchy of of monetary investment, creating access, those are questions that are being asked of the art world right now. So anybody, any student coming into the world right now needs to understand museums are asking themselves the question, how do we stay relevant so that we are not you know, representative of a, a, a white man's wealth portfolio, that we are representative of all cultures and all things, which is the intention of a museum. So um, I do think that the collections of museums uh, are being questioned in terms of their diversity, which is about access, your question. And that's true for collectors, too. So collectors are very interested in ensuring that um, they're learning and engaging in every person's dialogue on um, how art reflects culture and the ideas of our times. Hmm. I have to say, Parker, you love Kent Monkman. I do. <laughs> That's an example of an artist who is at the Met in the Grand Hall and is an amazing artist and should be in so mm-hmm. many museums and in many people's collections because as a Native person, his his work is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think I think you kind of touched on this. I mean, I, I think all of that is so important to understand. But um, clearly the art world impacts and influences people inside of it, but also outside anyone who goes to the museum. You might not necessarily consider yourself part of the art world, but you're learning from the pieces, you're interacting with them. So our next question is sort of who is paying attention to the art market um, and the art world from buyers and creators within the space and then also just from maybe people interested in it financially or people interested in it in more of an educational um, capacity. So what's your view on that? My view on that is that the number of people um, who, who pay attention to it and who influence it is changing and expanding a lot. So you could say... Historically, the people who pay attention to the art market are um, a, a certain number of collectors and definitely the people who are sort of the exchange agents within the marketplace, whether that be the galleries or the auction houses or the fairs. But, you know, the art world is 
uh, I would consider it a nascent business field. So I'm a business person, and I actually think that um, what we're starting to see is the evolution of the business practices to include a lot of what other industries really are. It's a very typical thing. So it's the instrumentation of how people access art. So now you're noticing in the last year, there's the ability to purchase a fractional share of something. Now that's an investment portfolio. A lot of people are in the art world because they really love the art. And if you can afford X, then you can only buy into X. You know, if you can afford, you know, multi-million dollar pieces, you might have a Picasso. But this is the cha- the transformation of the business practices are changing how people can access. There are art loans, there's art financing, there's fractional interest, you know, there's the whole emergence of of blockchain and the NFTs. So this is sort of the technical transformation. Um, And these things are changing our field. And so it will open up new career pathways for our audiences. And I believe you should look at the traditional pathways as well as these disruptive pathways. And um, and that, that'll that'll open up more opportunities for people. Absolutely, I think um, disruption is exciting. And uh, another episode that's airing today, we spoke with Cheyenne Westfall, uh, who is a who is the global chairwoman for Phillips Auction House, and we, she talked about throughout her entire career. I won't spoil too much of the episode about how important growth is throughout your career and and being able to adapt and pivot and change especially in an emerging industry and i think george and i who are on the job hunt right now are kind of seeing that as things are changing i mean you can't say post pandemic but post quarantine and post a world where we lived more so in isolation Mm -hmm. Uh, our next question for you uh, is kind of a, a bigger picture question about who decides what is good in the art world in terms of art specifically and how do they go about deciding that Um, we can use an example uh, from a museum if you want to do that or um, I think George and I would just be kind of curious to to hear your opinion I love that I hear that question a lot who decides what is good and I think you can have there's basically two answers to that question I think one is curators and museums and critics have a tendency to, uh, or they have the role, they actually have a formal role of, of deciding, presenting, having a dialogue around, developing scholarship, and creating the history which becomes art history. So that is the most, that's the highest level of acclaim and review, is, is that scholastic sort of level of uh, discourse. The, the other way people actually think about the answer to that question is the only person who decides if it's good is you. And if you love it, that's all that matters. And most artists would uh, say that. I'll tell you a funny story, though. Um, so I worked for the Rauschenberg Foundation. And one of the great things that we used to say about Bob is he used to love the things that everybody else hated because he believed that when you're changing people's minds, you're using art to uh, change people's minds. Sometimes it's ugly and sometimes it's really, uh, it's repulsive and sometimes people don't get it. And that those are the things that actually he was very attracted to because he thought that those were the things that moved the discourse 
and the dialogue forward. And you and that has been documented. You know, the the least successful reviews of the Whitney Biennials, interestingly, are become the most historically important. So, you know, you do have to recognize the fact that uh, creative thought often is, uh, I call it the, you know, it's, it's a little bit like the canary in the coal mine. I think of the artists as drawing people through thought. And they, they have a tendency to capture things that, that we only realize and come to later after we see the constellation. You know, artists have that um, prescience that um, a lot of people don't. So in some cases, welcoming being uncomfortable is a, is a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea. I've always felt that way too. And I think... Um, Our next question kind of speaks to what you just said, which is what kind of art is important to whom? Um, And I think this, of course, um, kind of has to do with the dichotomy between uh, getting curatorial and critical and scholastic acclaim and then also achieving acclaim sort of in the market or achieving high prices at auction and then also achieving um, notoriety among sort of the masses. And so can you speak a little bit to... Um, maybe how artists sort of fall into one of those three categories or whether they can straddle all three and um, just sort of what an audience really means for, for works of art. You know, I work with a lot of um, artist estates and, and largely because defining legacy is sort of part of what I've done. And um, what I've found is that there are many artists who don't, don't, gain market success or critical acclaim because they were shy. Maybe they were quiet. Maybe they weren't extroverted. And maybe they didn't have an ambassador working on their behalf. So, and conversely, then there are artists who um, have a great sense of uh, both their own creative art, manifest, manifesting it through their art, and then the, their ability to engage, network, dialogue, convey all their ideas. That, you know, balance between those two things is a real gift. And those artists usually achieve acclaim. I know an artist that you guys are interviewing, Emma Webster. She is one of those artists. She's an artist like Theaster Gates, a brilliant thinking artist, brilliant execution, also the ability to convey those ideas and connections and talk about how it's moving forward. So, you know, there are a lot of artists in history that may get overlooked because they may be introverted. They may not, you know, they may not have access to gallerists or uh, they may not get noticed by scholars or curators. So, you know, I know that many people spend time uncovering and unearthing those legacies and sort of pulling them forward. And, and that's a, that's a noble thing and a noble, you know, it's a, it's a, a cause to be feted because it's actually very important. Um, so who decides? You know, sometimes it's part of, part of the artist to engage, and sometimes it's the the ecosystem of people to ensure that those people get placed in um, in the right forums. No, that makes a lot of sense, and I think we can all quickly plug Emma Webster. Uh, she <laughs> is one of our guests this season on Declassified, but Emma Watson made mm-hmm. a beautiful I call it a movie it's two minutes long people disagree with, <laughs> with the, the a lingo film, but a film, it's, a, it's short a short film, film. Mm-hmm. 
and it, I think, beautifully captures Emma Webster's essence. So everyone, please check out that video on Emma Watson's page. Uh, hmm. And then moving on to our next question, after that short little plug-in promotion for our wonderful Best friend. friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> George and I are starting her official fan club. Yep. Uh, but this question is for you, Christy. So uh, moving forward in our in our conversation, how and through what mechanisms is fine art bought and sold? How is our work bought and sold? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to, uh, there's obvious answers. So you can purchase art through the galleries, and that can be physically or online. You can go to a fair uh, physically or online. You can go to an auction physically or online. And um, in some cases, you might know an artist and be able to buy it directly from them. Um, that's less uh, less of a practice traditionally. Um this is changing. You know, it's interesting. So when you one one thing I'll put out there for you is, uh, technology has had a tendency in other in- industries to disintermediate the middleman. The art industry is one of the few places where that has not happened, and that is largely because of one thing that your audience should know about, which is, the records of prices only exist publicly from the auction market. So anything that is exchanged directly or from a fair or from a gallery, there are no price records in the market for those. So um, this is something that digitally will transform over time. And although the galleries won't necessarily get disintermediated, um, the ways in which artists will connect to their collectors may. So there are a lot of people like Chris Dixon at Andreessen Horowitz who have been talking about a thousand fans model. Any artist who has a thousand fans has the ability to actually start to use technology, all of the social media, all these platforms, even through NFTs, and and catalyze that community. And then all of a sudden, there's a whole new ecosystem of people who support that artist. It may support their projects through a DAO or even through investment. So this is, in the next five to 10 years, that really will change. And there may be more direct influence uh, directly between an artist and and their collectors and their fans, their thousand fans. So I'm I'm a big believer that that model in the tech industry is probably the way in which technology will evolve um, the art field. That's so exciting. I, I personally would love to see that because I think artists lose a lot sort of between making their work and getting it to a client. There's a lot of in middle ground that um, they don't necessarily have as much control over as I wish they did. So that's really exciting to me. Um, they and- also don't necessarily have production funds, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. changes like seed financing or venture capital for artists. It's totally. sort of a different way to look at it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think another thing that's sort of changing right now is the geographical landscape of the art world. Um, And in our conversation again with Cheyenne, uh, which we had, which is coming out today, we talked also about how there's new city centers sort of popping up um, as important grounds for art exchange. So um, this question for you is, I mean, it's it's where we have to start with with this, which is where, um, which cities, countries or specific locales is the art world located and like where are the nuclei among um, these places? 
so this has changed over time. I mean, if you if you asked me that question 10 years ago, only 10 years ago, um, it would be um, New York, Berlin, Hong Kong, and you know, even LA was was just becoming on the scene. People were starting to move out there and galleries were starting to expand there. Maybe this is 10 or 15 years ago. Now, you know, in the last five years, and definitely through the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic really changed all of this. The idea of regional artists or the regionalization of a market has totally been obliterated. So, you know, when I was at the Rauschenberg Foundation, we invested in Atlanta and Detroit and Houston and Seattle and all of those cities now, Miami, they are epicenters. And in many ways, artists are moving to those places. They're in Miami, they're in Hudson, they're in Houston, you know, they're in they're in LA. It's more affordable. So in reality, these sort of creative incubative centers are are totally dispersed. So the center of the art world, let's say that the center starts with the artist, that is a radically diffused idea now. So, you know, I'm sure Cheyenne said this and any gallerist would say this, the gallerists are popping up in places like, uh, you know, Palm Beach or Aspen. They're going where there's wealth and where they can sell things. But the artists are really going places where they can afford and there's more community and there's more places to show their work. And um, so that the answer to that question is everywhere. It should, the answer should be everywhere. It's wherever the artists are, that's where it should be. Mm-hmm. I think it's exciting. You know, um, I worked with Eric Fischel and April Gornick, and they wrote back to me recently that they were just in Paris, and they said Paris has so some new energy mm. that's uh, emboldened by young people right now that they were thrilled. So whereas London was the epicenter, certainly, mm-hmm. you know, and Paris was, you know, it, 100 years ago, mm-hmm. it this might be cyclical, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm sure that Paris is sort of the new Berlin. Oh, I would you know, love the that. Berlin was the new Paris. So <laughs> Paris, Berlin, that. Paris. I could I use my French. French. Yeah, yeah. I could use my French finally. <laughs> I'll give up on my eight years of Chinese and yeah. switch to French. <laughs> I also think it's much more global, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm speaking about America, but, you know, whether it's in India or whether it's in Southeast Asia or, um, you know, these places are all, these are all global centers for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. No, yeah and I think that change is super exciting for everyone especially I think Georgia and I who are interested in kind of global contemporary art and the 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 connection that comes between different locales and places and artists and ideas that are shared but thinking about this change kind of big picture um, what about the current state of the art world do you see changing in the next five years uh, so that's the first question, and then we have a little follow-up question after that, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, so I see change happening in two ways. One is um, in a practice, in the practice, and the other is in the business. And I have a couple examples for you. So in practice, um, there in the last three years, there's been a lot of blurring I would call it, uh, and this isn't just like, oh, the auction houses and the galleries are blurring. This is about performance art and art, artistic practice and music are blurring, that the actual practice of art is changing. Um, one thing I learned from my time at Super Blue was 
the next generation is less interested in acquisition and ownership, and they're much more interested in experience, which is really true. I found that from my time at Stanford that and obviously the evolution of so many companies like Airbnb and VRBO and and Uber, these are all sort of, you know, how you transform uh, business practices to this new viewpoint. And we, we saw this as super blue. So it actually gives rise to experiential artists, artists that had, you know, maybe it was like back in when Klaus Oldenburg had a had a storefront that was an experience but now you actually have so many artists that are working in these immersive technologies or they're working in uh, you know drones how drones and lasers and you know artificial intelligence can be brought as an experience so the purchase of it is through a ticket because you don't own it you actually just experience the art so I see more of this you know in the last week the um, the Grand Palais dedicated um, their space, a big portion of their space, to experiential art, which validated this idea that this is an art form. It's not a commercial practice. So that's one thing I just wanted to say. The business, I think that um, I'm really involved right now in a lot of this uh, blockchain application, uh, the development of NFTs, and the use of DAOs. And I think that this there's a lot of conversation around this, and this is very, very important. The most fundamental is the use of blockchain means that an artist uh, has no more need to work on authentication. So when I was at the Rauschenberg Foundation, the Warhol Foundation had a problem with this, the Liechtenstein Foundation. We all talked about how do we make sure that the artwork is verified as authentic. Blockchain takes that and, and validates it. It will change how ARS and VAGA work. These are the credentializing agencies. Um, it's a way in which the artist can issue NFTs and develop a community of interest around it. And it goes back to our prior point about, you know, how an artist connects with their fans. You know, you have... Uh, you know, Lucian Smith issues these seed packets uh, and 10,000 of them. And all of a sudden, this artist has 10,000 new fans and investors, you know, within a matter of weeks, which is a totally a transformative experience. So I think that that will grow a lot. Absolutely. Um, and then so you've kind of highlighted, I think, the change that's happening. But I think George and I are really curious about really the why behind all of this change. Um, obviously, we've been in a really kind of crazy last couple of years, um, but we'd be just curious, kind of high level, what is driving a lot of this change in, in your opinion? Um, well, I think mo both of those, mm -hmm. whether it's practice or business, is actually driven by technology and, uh, and people's adoption of technology. And uh, so I, I, would, I would attribute it to that. You know, I think that the practice of art, whether it's painting or sculpture, remains uh, critical and seminal in, in the art market. Um, but even painters, so David Sally issued an NFT recently, and you know Tom Sachs has issued a very successful set of NFTs. You know, these are, these are artists, fine artists, who are traversing into an, a totally different marketplace. Uh, and similarly, some of the 
uh, NFT artists are traversing over into the fine art marketplace. So I, I think that technology is one of the forces. You know, I don't want to forget these forces of social change that are affecting mm-hmm. us. So you have an artist like JR who is, um, his art is a reflection of social injustice, mm-hmm. um, whether it's migration or a border wall or, um, or racial uh, diversity. So there's an example of other forces that are impacting an artist's practice. And so I think JR is a great example of that. Adam Pendleton is a great example of that. And that's, so I don't think technology is the only, I actually think these social forces are a really significant part of it too. Mm-hmm. I think even though technology and social forces can be kind of viewed separately too, technology really has to do with the ability to share and, and for a wider audience to view and engage with art and obviously yeah. as a wider audience is engaging with it they have different expectations for what they're going to see they'll have different opinions um, and they'll put different pressures on the industry to include them in different ways so I think it really is all um, sort of connected which is really exciting okay so Christy I think obviously you've shared with us so much amazing um, amazing pearls of wisdom about what's going on in the art world right now but another way that I think we can all really learn from you is learning about the way that you've gotten where you are right now in the art world. Um, so first, how would you define your own role in the art world? And then would you just tell us a little bit about how you got there? <laughs> oh, wow. That's a big question. Yeah. And, you know, I will say for young people that um, I never had a career trajectory in the mm-hmm. art world. It would really, I mean, I think I would define my career as I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm very good at starting up uh, new cultural businesses and bringing my business strategy experience to that. And usually it's about developing a new model, fixing something or, or treading a whole new marketplace. So the most important thing I think when you're thinking about your career is really understanding what you're good at. And it kind of sometimes can take a little while. So, you know, most of my starting jobs out of undergraduate were in real estate. It was, I worked for um, Disney development company. We developed a new town called Celebration. And then I moved to Chicago where we moved a road called Lakeshore Drive and we created this lakefront park. But my real, I consider my real career to sort of start when I went to um, the Philip Johnson Glass House. And the only, the reason, the only reason they hired me, because I had no experience, um, was uh, the, the model of historic house museums was broken. You know, people would go once and they couldn't make any money and they were all suffering financially. So in order to get this job, and this should be a great lesson for young people, is I wrote a little business plan, like three to five page business plan on how we could change the historic house museum model so that you could uh, generate capital and it could be self-sustaining. And so it got, I actually got the job, which was incredible. I was there for six to seven years and it was you know starting up the site and really building the legacy of Philip Johnson and David Whitney. But but the model was broader. It was about how we looked at modern preservation within the country and how we started to develop that scholarship. And because of the work I did there, and my, my lesson for everybody listening is 
Um, I just, you know, in the art world, in the cultural world, it's really all about your networks. You know, there's not a lot of job postings. It's really about knowing people and connecting to people. So I had been connected to Robert Rauschenberg's curator while I was at the Glass House. And after Bob died, they asked me to come and um, help them. And so I ended up being their first director and starting up that foundation, which I was there for um, another six to seven years. And it was, you know, transitioning the estate and working with the artwork and creating an artist residency on an island off of Florida and then creating the philanthropy program. And um, then I uh, went to Sotheby's. A friend of mine ran Sotheby's. His name was Tad. And they wanted to develop a practice area uh, to advise artists on their estates. Now, this wasn't a great, it wasn't actually the, the right forum for it. It did um, help the, the recognition of the need for it. But Sotheby's at that point was public, and so they had a quarter-to-quarter view. And artist estates is a very long-term view. So I ended up leaving there and going to start up Super Blue with Pace, which was really pioneering a whole new marketplace. How could we create an artistic experience that was ticketed and take this whole new group of artists? We raised the money. We started a site in Miami. And so as you can see, the career is a little bit like you know, you get this experience and you're working with these people and it traverses you into another experience. I don't, I'm not an operator. I don't sort of stay and operate things. I'm really much better at the front end um, strategy building, fundraising, uh, building the team, launching things um, successfully. And so once you know what you're good at and you've worked on these networks, it's really a great way for a young person to, um, sort of understand and develop your own career. And people know you for certain things. So I get called to help advise artist estates. Um, I helped Eric Fischel and April Gornick buy a, a historic church in Sag Harbor. And we assembled the funding and uh, they got it um, restored and it, it's opened. It's really an amazing space if anybody's been out to Sag Harbor. And, and now I'm... Um, working, I have a venture fund that's investing in artist estates, and I'm advising a number of companies on NFTs and DAOs, et cetera. So I'm involved in those things. So I would call my career a little bit like a kite. It sort of like floats <laughs> up and it goes a little over here and over there. And, you know, I think for young people, part of it is, you know, getting out there and it's okay to take a project. And a project sometimes turns into a job. And, and really, you know, go to the gallery shows and become part of a museum circle and, and you know, meet the artists. And by establishing those networks uh, and your own, um, you guys are also entrepreneurial, you should just try to start your own thing. And, you know, there are going to be people to support you to do that. And that's sort of, you know, my, my career advice from what I've learned. No, I love that. that I think, well... George and I often refer to you as the fog sculptor. You kind of just create this beautiful thing out of who knows what. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just appears and you're like, wow, I need to get my job. I think as an entrepreneur, you also have to realize like any entrepreneur who's listening to this will know it's like it's going to take two left turns. Like you just have to be ready for like it's going to either, you know, it'll 
tank or it takes a left turn and you just have to be nimble enough to you know kind of go with the flow and and figure out how it's going to work so i i do think that because there are it's not banking it's not mckinsey you know it's not it there are no pathways it you define those pathways and the pathways that uh, become opportunities for you, they're, they'll evidence themselves two weeks before they are needed. It's not like there's a, you know, interview cycle and in a year you're going to join Bain Capital. It's just not the same way in the cultural world. No, I love that. And I think even to your earlier point, uh, George and I got the inspiration to start this podcast from a project that we were working on this past summer. And, and now we're here first episode there you go smiles there on you our go. faces mm-hmm. so we have yes. two more questions for you uh and you've highlighted this kind of throughout your com- our conversation so far today but specifically you can give us two or three ideas but or one totally up to you <laughs> what advice do you have for young professionals like georgia and me trying to break into this field right now so um, number one is to identify mentors and people to have just informational interviews, just to get yourself Check. known. <laughs> Check. So, and that doesn't mean, you know, maybe there's one. I wouldn't do any more than three or four. People who, you know, people in the cultural world want to help young people. And I do believe if you have an informational interview and you ask for uh, and you can speak to what you're interested in and what you want to do. People will connect you, you know, through their own network, and so that's part of that. What I was saying, you know, that that this is all about a system, and it's it's a little bit like a spider's web, you know, how everything is interconnected. So that's one. The other is just what I said earlier, which is don't be afraid to take a project. And don't be afraid to start up your own thing. And I think particularly because of those forces of change, you guys, your generation has a chance to uh, make that change happen. So your hardest thing is going to be to put a little business panel together and pitch it and have somebody fund it so that you can create that change. So I think that you should know that that is a welcome thing in the cultural realm. Whether you have a digital idea or you have a new way to bring, you know, other things you see in other industries into the art world. Um, but, you know, I believe that it's really all about networking and just trying and being nimble. Oh, I love that. you got to stay vigilant. Yep. Um, totally. <laughs> so this is probably the moment for our audience you didn't know you were waiting for. But as your host on Declassified... <laughs> We wanted to create a signature question to ask each guest that comes onto the pod. So, Christy, our signature question is, if you were to have any job in the art world, what would it be? You can invent your own job or borrow someone else's job. So, Christy, if you could have... Or you, you can keep have, your own. Oh, yeah, or keep your own. Mm-hmm. I think we'll quickly, <laughs> yeah. we'll quickly learn that people are doing what they love. But yeah. if you could have any job in the art world, what would you choose? You know, okay, so... I would take the practice of being a venture capitalist and or a VC person, an investor, and I would invest in all of the young people's ideas. So I actually believe, I mean, I am doing a little bit of a venture, you know, a little bit of sort of investing in estates and managing them for the long term. But I really believe that um, that seed funding for a lot of the stuff that's going to be coming up in your next generation is a real opportunity. So I would do that. That's what I would do. Oh, Maybe well, I should do that. 
<laughs> I think I think I mean I think I see it happening right now. <laughs> maybe maybe that's what I should do. I think yeah. I might do that. I can share my Venmo if we want to start today. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. If anybody listening has a great idea, send it my way. Oh I love it. Oh my gosh, it. that's really the dream. Yeah. Really the dream. Um, Christy, you're the dream. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. We're so grateful to have you on our team. I mean, we just absolutely could not have done any of this without you. Um, and your expertise and your warmth and you're just um, just such a wonderful mentor to have. And so we're so grateful for you to be on the podcast today and share all your knowledge with our listeners. Um, and thank you listeners for tuning into our first episode of Declassified. We can't wait to kick this season off and um, get going. So proud of you guys. Thank you, Christy. Um, for everyone listening, today we are doing things a little bit differently and are releasing three episodes at once using George's lingo, mic drop. Uh, and we're doing this to kind of tease you all about what is to come and what to expect from the Declassified team. Before we end things, we'd like to thank Christy one more time for all of her help and guidance. And then also Olivia, our audio editor, for working her magic. Uh, and you'll quickly learn that she is a guru. If you're interested in all things Declassified, please just follow our Instagram at declassified.pod. Check out our website declassified-pod.com to gain access to a summary of the episode with potentially unfamiliar words explained and links to the galleries, museums, and all the fun art stuff we talked about today. And finally, please, please, please subscribe to our podcast on your preferred streaming platform so you can get notifications when new episodes air. See you next time.